welcome Free Church. We're glad that you're, you're here with us. If you are new or visiting and you're, there's anything you'd like to communicate with the church, there's a connect card on the seat in front of you. We'd invite you to, to fill that out and drop it in the, the offering boxes on the back wall on the way out with wooden boxes that are on the back wall. That's also where tithes and offerings can be placed. So I kind of make you aware of kind of the schedule for this morning. So we'll have our worship service now. We'll go to about 10.15 and then at 10.30, Children's Sunday School will start downstairs. And then at 10.45, we will meet back up here in this room for a, a question and answer session um, about the sermon. If you have any questions you'd like to ask about that, we'd invite you to be a part of that. You may have noticed, right, just a little bit of a tweak in our normal kind of worship format this morning. There was a, a timer counting down the time as you walked in this morning, and I'm starting up here. Usually we start with a song, but I'm starting up here this morning, right? And the goal for this is to kind of help us, when the worship service kind of formally starts, have our heart and our mind in the right place as we launch in to worship. And so... This will kind of start a new pattern. We're going to just try out for a while and see how it goes. But it will start with me being up here welcoming everyone, and then we'll do announcements. And then I'm going to put us into a moment of silence just to kind of center our thoughts and get our minds right, fixed on God. Then we'll move into a, a call to worship from Scripture, and then we will we will sing and we will pray together in the norm, kind of our normal pattern we've always done. So that, that in my list, just a couple of announcements I want to bring to your attention this morning. One is that starting next Sunday, we will start a, a study called, go through a book called Habits of the Household. So it's just a, a study for, primarily for parents of, of children of all ages, focusing on like how do we use the time we have our kids in the house to point them to Jesus. Um, and so if you're a parent or a grandparent who spends a lot of time with your younger grandchildren, I just invite you to come be a part of that. We'll meet in the library starting next Sunday. We'll meet from 10.30 to 11.30. And the next announcement is that last week we launched, we're calling Fighter Verses for the year. So it's a, a scripture memory system. So the, the verse for, for last week is up on the screen. Hopefully some of you memorized it. It's Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If you didn't do that one, or if you're looking forward to next week, the next week verse is up here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but that's a verse we'll memorize for next. Verse is we'll memorize for next week. I'm going to invite you to, to do that. That's just a beautiful passage of Pope Alberta's on how God had redeemed us and loves us and cares for us, and it's good for our heart to have those kind of verses in, in our hearts and minds. So I encourage you to memorize that for, for during the next coming week. Final announcement, I think your bulletin, there's uh, a flyer about the No Regrets Men's Conference. So if you're a man interested in that, I invite you to check that out as well. With all that said, would you join me just in a moment of silence as we fix our minds on the reason we gather here this morning, which is to worship our God. Take a moment of silence.
Joe Juice stand with me as we are called to worship by the word of Scripture. I'll read first and read the next section after me. So shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. All the earth worships you and sing praise to you. They sing praises to your name.
be seated. As, you, as we continue in this time of worship, would you join me in prayer? Father God, you are a God who, as we just sang, does great things. You spoke and this world came into being. You, by your might and your power, have orchestrated all of history's events to bring each one of us here this morning for your reasons, for your purposes. And we thank you for the way you've worked in each one of our lives to bring us here this morning, to gather together as the people you have called together in this place, that wherever our heart is at this morning, wherever our mind is at this morning, whatever trials we are going through, we gather here together to rejoice in what you've done, to encourage one another, and to bring you honor and worship and praise. I pray that we would do that this morning, that all that we do here this morning would serve to, to glorify you and remind us of the great things you have done for us. That when we go out from here, we would go rejoicing in what you've done and feeling eager to share your goodness with others. Father, I do pray this morning for, for those in our church family who are hurting, who are going through difficult times. Pray that you would work in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those difficulties to bring good even out of darkness, to bring good even out of trouble, to trust you are a good and loving and all-powerful God who can work even in the midst of brokenness and sin to do great things. So, Father, would we trust that this morning? Would we rejoice and praise you for it? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you stand as we continue to sing? <coughs>
my dear children, I fear as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish I were there right now so I could change my tone, but this distance, I don't know how else to help you. Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? The scripture say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment to his promise. These two women will serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is like Mount Sinai in Arabia, because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents heavenly Jerusalem. She is a free woman, and she is her mother. As Isaiah said, Rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what, does, but what do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. Children in 4K through second grade, if they want to go to Children Church downstairs, they're dismissed for that at this time. The rest of you may be seated. In the 2006 World Cup final in soccer, France and Italy were tied 1-1. France's goal had been scored by the legendary Zinedine Zidane, and he was playing his last professional game before retiring. He was trying to end his career kind of in glory by, by leading his country to World Cup victory in the final. And with the match tied in extra time, the storybook ending seemed like it was about to happen. In the 104th minute, Zidane had a, a header. He shot toward goal that looked like it could go in. That would have been a game-winning goal. Like, what a career-ending victory that would have been. But it was not to be because the Italian goalkeeper tipped the shot over the crossbar at the last second, and the game remained tied. And then it was a few minutes later, late in extra time, shortly before penalty kick, that the event that has since made this game famous took place. And it resulted in Zidane's career ending in infamy rather than glory. So Zidane was walking up the sideline, jogging past the Italian defender Marco Materazzi, when suddenly, we can't hear anything, so he just seems like out of nowhere, he turns around and he headbutts Materazzi square in the chest. And for this act of aggression, Zidane is given a red card. He's forced to leave the pitch. And his playing career comes to an end in that inglorious 
moment. And Italy would go on to, to win the game on penalty kicks, with Zidane, who's France's best penalty kicker, unable to take part. It was a, a devastating end to an otherwise great career. But the question that's raises then is like, why? Like, what could have inspired Zidane to headbutt Matarazzi? What could Matarazzi have done that would possess Zidane to act in such a way, in such a one of the most important moments of his career? Like, what could have inspired this? And people speculated about that question for, for years after it happened. But recently, both players have come out and addressed what actually happened. And both players tell basically the same story, which is that Matarazzi made an impolite remark about Zidane's sister. And interestingly, interestingly Matarazzi didn't even know if Zidane had a sister when he made the remark. He just kind of said it. But Zidane does have a sister, and that comment deeply offended him, and it, it prompted his infamous response. And this whole incident kind of highlights the fact that we're quick to get offended when, when someone insults our family. Right? Like, like that's the whole premise behind like your mama jokes. Right? Like, right? The idea is that you can insult a person kind of indirectly by insulting their mom. Right? If you're not familiar with your mama jokes, I won't share any. Right? They're not exactly edifying, right? but there's like a spin-off like version that's called Your Mama Compliments. So I'll give you a couple of those, and you can fill in the blanks. Right? So some Your Mama Compliments. Right? Like Your Mama's so cuddly that puppies watch YouTube videos of her. Right? Or your Mama's so wise. <clears throat> excuse me. Your Mama's so wise that Yoda texts her for advice. Like, you can imagine like the reverse and how that can be turned into an insult, but I'll leave that to your imagination. But it's all based on the premise, right, that we can be quickly offended when someone insults our family, especially our mama. But why? Like, why are we so quick to get offended when someone comes after our family? Because we love them, yes. But I think it goes deeper than that. It's also because our family is a, a reflection of us. We are, are deeply formed in who we are by who our family is. And so when someone makes fun of our family, it's really a way for them to make fun of you. Right? In short, like your family matters. Who your family is matters. Who your mama is matters. And that's the point that Paul is making in, in Galatians 4, 19-31, which you just heard read. And so maybe as you heard that, or maybe if you read that passage this week in preparation for this morning, you thought, like, what in the world is this about? And if you had that thought, you're in good company. Like, pretty much every Bible scholar agrees that, that this passage in Galatians is like the hardest part of Galatians to understand. In fact, like months ago when I was thinking about like what book I should preach through next, like I kept kind of feeling prompted to preach through Galatians. But then I'd have that thought, oh, I should preach through Galatians. But then my next thought was always, yeah, but there's that weird section in Galatians 4 about Hagar and Sarah, and like, I don't really want to figure out how to preach on that. Like, sure, there's another book I can preach on. But in the end, I felt convicted, convinced I should preach through Galatians, and so here we are this morning. And you might ask, right, like, why not just skip this part? But the reason I 
preach through books of the Bible in the first place, instead of just kind of preaching on whatever I feel like on any given week, it's that it forces me to, and us to wrestle with, with everything that comes up in the scriptures. Right? Not just the parts that are easy, not just the parts that are comfortable, not just the parts that are popular. Right? Like every part of this is, is God's word. He gave it to us for a reason, including this weird passage in Galatians. So it wouldn't be right to skip parts and just kind of pretend like they're not there. I'm going to do my best this morning to, to help us see why God inspired Paul to write this passage. If you're paying really close attention week to week, you might have noticed that there's like a two-verse overlap between the last two verses from what I preached on last week to the first two verses from this week. And that's because, like, pretty much every Bible you'll read will draw a line between verses 20 and 21 in Galatians 4. If you have your Bible open, you can, you can probably see it in the New Living Translation, which I'm preaching from. It looks like this. Right? So you have verse 20, verse 19, 20. And there's a section heading that says, Abraham's two children. And then verses 21 through 31 kind of start a new section. But as I've studied this week, I think actually verses 19 and 20, especially verse 19, it's really important to understanding what Paul is going to say in verses 21 through 31. Verses 21 through 31 are all about Paul urging the Galatians to answer the question, who is your mother? Is your mother Hagar or is your mother Sarah? So at home we have the P.D. Eastman book, Are You My Mother?, if you're not familiar, like in this book, the baby bird goes from animal to animal, and at one point even on that construction vehicle, and it asks, like, are you my mother? He can't find a mother, so he's going all over, asking, are you my mother? But then at the end of the book, the baby bird sees his, his actual mother, and he instantly recognizes her. He recognizes, he can tell their affinity there, and he recognizes who his mother is. That's what Paul is encouraging the Galatians to do in this passage. He's saying, go to Hagar and go to Sarah and and metaphorically ask, are you my mother? Which one of you is my mother? There's a deep theme of of motherhood and who your mother is in verses 21 through 31. So I think it would be foolish to think that what Paul says in verse 19 is unrelated. Look at verse 19. Paul says, oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. Paul is picturing himself here as a a spiritual mother to the Galatians. He's talking about going through labor pains for them. And his point is that for the Galatians to reject the way of life he taught them, it's causing Paul the kind of pain that a, a mother would experience if she lost a child or if a child grew up and, and rejected her. That's why in verse 20 he says, I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone. But at this distance, I don't know how else to help you. Right? Sometimes we can read this letter and, and Paul comes across as, as angry and combative with the Galatians. But really, Paul is writing this letter out of, a, out of a deep love for the Galatians. It's the love of a mother for a child. He's writing this letter. He can't convey his, 
his love for them through his tone of speech because he's away from them. He can't convey his love by, by placing a hand on their shoulder. He doesn't have nonverbal cues at his disposal to show his love. So all he can do is speak these truths. But without the advantage of nonverbal communication, he knows it's kind of coming across as combative criticism. You can just imagine, like, if you send your child off to college, like back in the day before phones and email and texting and FaceTime and whatever else, and the only way to communicate with them was through the occasional letter. And then you heard that they were making bad choices at college, and so you write them a letter. And you're, you're urging them out of love to make good decisions. But without them being able to hear your tone of voice, without them being able to hear your, see your facial expressions and, and feel your physical affection, it would be hard to write that letter in a way that, that didn't come across as critical and, and condemning. That's the, that's the problem Paul is facing as he writes the book of Galatians. He has a, a mother's love for the Galatians, and he sees them wandering away from the truth. And all he has is the power of his pen and parchment to try to draw them back. And so this whole letter, this whole book of Galatians is a letter where Paul is trying to draw back the Galatian Christian to the truth. And all throughout the letter, he's, he's trying to make the same point over and over and over again. But he's coming at it from different directions, different angles, hoping that one of those angles will somehow resonate with the Galatians. And so in verses 21 through 31, he's He's trying once again to, to drive home the same point he's been making all letter long. And this time the angle that he comes from is the angle of, of family. He's reminding the Galatians here that like, your family matters. I had a whole like, thing on the TV show Family Matters that I don't have time for, but it, it was great, trust me. Just take my word for it, right? But he's also in this letter, like reminding the Galatians that he, that he loves them with as much love as, as a mother has for her child. And this issue that Paul's been, been dealing with all throughout the book, that there are some people in the church in Galatia who, who believe that in addition to trusting Jesus, the Gentile believers should be required to keep the Old Testament law as well. And Paul over and over and over again is making the point that no, Jesus has done everything that's required to make you right with God. Jesus has done everything that's required to make you a member of God's family. The gospel, the good news about how our sins can be forgiven and how, and how we can be made a part of God's family is this. It's, it's Jesus and nothing else. That's, that's Paul's theme for this whole book. That's why I've called the subtitle of the series, Jesus Plus Nothing. Back on Christmas Eve, we looked at Galatians 4, 4 through 7, which says, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who are slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Jesus came to make us children of God, to welcome us into God's family. And it was all because of what Jesus did. But the claim of some of the people in the church in Galatia was that 
It's only those who still kept the Old Testament law who were, who were truly children of God. Like, yes, Jesus had something to do with it, but you also had to keep the Old Testament law. Their equation was not Jesus plus nothing. It was Jesus plus law obedience. And so in verse 21, Paul takes another try at showing the Galatians the, the futility of the equation Jesus plus anything else. He tells me in verse, he tells us in verse 21, tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? And the first question we have to address is, like, why would anyone want to live under the law? He says, you who want to live under the law. Who is that? Who would want to live under the law? Don't we love freedom? Like, why would anyone want to live under the law? I think the answer is because as much as we love freedom, there's a temptation and a a draw that's even more powerful than freedom. That is our pride. And what living under the law does is it allows us to feed our pride in two different ways. So the first way that living under the law allows us to feel like we contributed something to our own salvation. Paul's message is that there is nothing you can do to earn salvation. It's only because Jesus came and lived a sinless life, a life that you couldn't live on your own, that we can be made right with God. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation or add to your salvation. It's all because of Jesus. That's Paul's message. We're just saying reckless love. Are we saying, I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, and Jesus came for us. But our pride doesn't like that message. When our salvation is at least in part dependent on our living under the law, then I can say, look at my obedience. Look, it's because I obey the law that God has made me right with him. It's because of what I'm doing. Look at me. Look how great I am. I'm keeping the law. Look at me. That's one way that, that living under the law feeds our pride. The second way is that it allows us to feel superior to others. When we're focused on, on law and rule-keeping, we can look at those around us and we can think, eh, I'm better than that guy. I don't watch the same trashy TV shows that that person watches. Like, I read my Bible more than that person over there, and I pray more than that person over there, and I get angry less often than that person over there. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Like, maybe, not, maybe I'm not doing quite as well as that person over there, but, but they're holier than thou anyway, so why would I care? I'm pretty great. Like living under the law makes comparative righteousness the norm. And when we're comparing our righteousness to others, we can always find someone we're better than. We can pat ourselves on the back and we can feed our pride. But on the other hand, living under grace instead of the law, which is what Paul has been urging us to do throughout this letter, living under grace is humbling. Living under grace required us to say, there is nothing I can do to make myself right with God. On my own, in my own power, I'm a sinner and I'm a slave to sin. True of every one of us. We need to fully rely on Jesus. The righteousness that matters is not how my righteousness compares to somebody else, but on how my righteousness compares to God's perfect standard. 
And when I compare myself to God's perfect standard, then I fail miserably. And I don't like the feeling of failing miserably. No one does. That's why we've become a culture of participation trophies. It feels better to have someone tell us, like, good try and give us a trophy for our efforts than it does to be reminded that we weren't good enough. We like to live under the lock and it allows us to point to our efforts and point our, pat ourselves on the back. And the Galatians who are trying to live under the law and keep the Old Testament traditions are doing the same thing. And we do the same thing all the time as well. Like we try to earn our salvation. We try to do little things to make God happy with us and, and earn God's favor. But Paul then turns to the Galatians he says to them, like, do you know what the law actually says? And he asks that the question to be nice, right? but the implication is, hey, you don't know what the law actually says. Like, if you knew what the law actually says, you wouldn't be so eager to live under it. And then to drive the point home, he goes on this big, long discussion of Hagar and Sarah. And how these, these two women represent God's two covenants. And they're two Jerusalems. And it's all very confusing. And it's enough to make you wonder, like, what's going on here? Right, but if we zoom out and we kind of boil the passage down to its central idea, right, it's ultimately that Paul is making the same point that he's made all throughout this letter, just from another perspective. That point is this, right, that trying to force your way into God's favor and blessing by your own work by your own works, doesn't work. Only when we trust God's promise, only when we let God do the work himself of keeping his own promise, will we receive the blessing that he has promised us. So my goal in the rest of our time this morning is just to help us see how Paul is making that point from this admittedly confusing passage. Look at verse 22. Paul said, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. It's so way back in, in the early part of Genesis and the very beginning of the Bible, God appears to Abraham. And God promised Abraham that he was going to give him the land of Canaan and that he was going to make Abraham into a great nation with offspring as numerous as the stars and the sky. There's just one kind of apparent problem with that. That was that Abraham was pushing 100 years old. And his wife, Sarah, was not much younger. And she had been barren, even during her childbearing years. And now she's well past childbearing age. As different as things may be between then and now, like, biology still works the same way. Like, nine-year-old women don't get pregnant. So how is God going to make Abraham the patriarch of a great, numerous family when he and his wife, Sarah, couldn't even have one child? And in Genesis 16, Sarah herself comes up with a solution. She says this. Now Sarai, which is her name before God changed to Sarah, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have a child through her. So Abraham does that and Hagar becomes pregnant and she gives birth to the child Ishmael. 
little bit later, God makes it clear that that was not how he planned on keeping his promise. And instead, miraculously, God allows Sarah to become pregnant herself. In Genesis chapter 21, we read, The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac. After eight days, Isaac, eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born. Now there are these two sons. One, Ishmael, born of the slave woman Hagar, and the other, Isaac, born of the free woman Sarah. The important distinction is not so much that one is born to a slave and the other one is born to a free woman. Right? The important distinction is found in verse 23. The son of the slave woman, that's Ishmael, born of Hagar, was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. And in Jesus, God has made us promises just the way he made Abraham promises. In Jesus, God has promised us that our sins can be forgiven. He promised us that we can have eternal life and that our relationship with God that has been broken by our sin can be restored. God promises that we can be made right with God and that our reconciliation with God can then lead to reconciliation with others. And Paul's question to the Galatians then is, when it comes to those promises, who is your mother? If you're trying to make those promises come true by, by keeping the law, that's a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. If you're trying to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise through your own effort to obey God and keep the law, then, then Hagar is your mother. Right? But if you're living under grace, if you're trusting that there is nothing in your power that you can do to bring about God's promises, if you're living completely in faith, completely trusting that God will fulfill his own promise and his own power, then Sarah is your mother, and you are a true spiritual child of Abraham. The great boast of the Israelites all through history has always been, like, we are children of Abraham. They mean genetically, but then John the Baptist shows up, and in Matthew 3, 9, he says, Don't just say to each other, We're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Likewise, then Jesus shows up in John chapter 8, and he says this, Yes, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham. And yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I am telling you what I saw when I was with the Father. But you are following the advice of your father. Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied. For if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Right? And Jesus' point is like, Yes, if the, if the Israelites had taken a, a 23andMe DNA test, like, sure, it would say that Abraham was their father. But the way they're living shows that Abraham is not truly their father. 
not their spiritual father. It's the spiritual father that matters. Now Paul comes on the scene, and he adds to that. He says, what really matters is not even ultimately who your father is, but who your mother is. Not in the sense of whose DNA runs through your veins. It doesn't matter what 23andMe says your mother is, but the, the question is, who is your spiritual mother? That's why Paul using the language of, of being a spiritual mother to the Galatians matters so much. Like Paul is saying back then, like, I'm a child of Sarah, and I thought you were my children, and so then you would have been daughters of Sarah as, as well. But now I feel like I have to go through labor pains again and have you be born all over again because you're acting like Hagar is your mother. You're living under the law. You're trying to keep the, the God promise through your own efforts. But if you were really my child, which would also make you my brother and sister in Jesus, right? don't let the blending of family metaphor confuse you. But he says in verse 31, we are not, all who are with me, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. And so Paul ends this long passage by once again implying the same question, like who is your mother? Are you a child of the slave woman or are you a child of the free woman? It's a question that each of us must answer. Are we spiritually children of Hagar, trying to force God's hand, trying to force God to keep his own promise through our own efforts? Or are we children of Sarah, who know that it's only if God in his own power keeps his promise, even though there's nothing we can do to make that promise come true? Then we're child, children of Sarah. It's just another way of asking the same question that Paul act, asked back in verse 23. Are you living under the law? Are you trusting in, a, in your human attempt to bring about God's promise? Or are you trusting that God himself will fulfill his own promise? Are you trusting in yourself or are you trusting in God We're tempted, we're so tempted to live under the law. We're tempted to believe that we can do something to make ourselves right with God. We want to believe that we can contribute something to our own salvation. We want to believe that we can take matters into our own hands and and make God bless us like Abraham did with Hagar. That doesn't work. Back in Galatians 2, Paul said, no one will be made right with God by obeying the law. None of us can be good enough to earn God's blessing. None of us can be good enough because we've all sinned and we've all broken our relationship with God. We can't fix that in our own power. Our only hope is if God fulfills his own promise, which is what he did in sending Jesus. Paul earlier in this letter said, if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no reason for Christ to die. But keeping the law couldn't make us right with God. So God sent Jesus, His Son, to die in our place. Jesus came, He takes our sins upon Himself, and He offers us His righteousness in return. So we can be made right with God. And God fulfilled His own promise by sending His Son to do what we could not do. In John 6, Jesus says, this is the only work God wants from you. 
believe in the one he has sent. If the only work God wants from you, like Abraham, is to trust and believe that God will keep his promise and that he'll do it through Jesus. No matter what sins you've committed, no matter how but good or bad things you've done, the only work God wants from you is to believe in Jesus. And if you do that, your sins are forgiven, your relationship with God is restored, and you will have eternal life. All the promises of God come true in Jesus if you believe in Jesus. That doesn't mean, right, that that doesn't matter how we live. Next week we'll get into Galatians 5, and in that passage Paul will say, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. The call is to not use our freedom to, to satisfy our own desire, but to use our freedom to serve one another in love. But even Paul's call there is it all starts in, in recognizing that we've been called to live in freedom. Because of Jesus, right? We are free from having to perform to earn, from having to perform to earn God's favor. And that freedom that allows us to make the free choice in response to the way that God has loved us and served us in Jesus to love and serve others as well. So if you're here and you've been trying to, to force your way into God's promise by your own work, like it, it won't work. All that will work, all that can make God's promise to come true is you believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you haven't done that, I'd urge you to do that. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet Jesus came for us. And as we close, just kind of two quick points of application from, from this passage. To the first in verse 29. You are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law. Just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the children born by the power of the Spirit. And those who are prone to trying to earn God's favor by their own actions have always and will continue to persecute those who live in the freedom that Jesus offers. And there's a joke that goes, how can you tell if someone is a vegan? The answer is, don't worry, they'll tell you. And it's not just vegans. Like, Anyone who's really committed to something, especially if they think that thing makes them morally superior in some way, are real quick to share about it. And they often share about it in a way that it, where it makes it seem clear that they are subtly, or not so subtly, trying to make you feel guilty for not being on the same team they're on. For not meeting their standard. And those in our culture, and even in the church, with a legalistic child of Hagar disposition, do the same thing to those who are living in Christian freedom. There's a saying popular back in the day, we don't smoke, drink, dance, or chew, or date girls who do. Right? 
And the implication behind those words is, if you do any of those things, then you're a wicked sinner. You're at best a lower class Christian. There's, there's judgment in those words. And we should not be surprised when those who put their hope in strict, legalistic rule-keeping persecute us. So we won't be careful on the flip side not to persecute others who, who don't live up to the same standards that we've found in ourselves, that we have drawn for ourselves. Right? How someone spends their time or how they spend their money or how much they read their Bible or what media they consume or what activities they boycott. None of those things are what make them right with God. We must be careful not to persecute others for the decisions they make in those areas. Our job right, is not to persecute them, not to make them feel guilty, but to point them to the gospel and the forgiving love of Jesus and let the Holy Spirit work in their lives to lead them to the life that He wants them to live. And finally, the, the second application here is found in verse 30. But what do the Scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And so verse 30, if there's this sense right, that if, if Sarah is our spiritual mother, then we have an inheritance waiting for us. There's, a, there's, an, there's an inheritance waiting for us who are our spiritual children of Sarah. Back in Galatians 4, 7, Paul said, Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. That's the hope we live in. That we have an eternal inheritance that awaits us as an heir of our loving Father. So no matter how hard things may be, no matter how bleak things may seem in the moment, no matter how difficult things are, because we live in this sinful, fallen, broken world, there is coming a day when we have an inheritance waiting for us. An inheritance that, that God shares with us, and He calls us His children. I'm always reminded of Paul's words when he says in Romans, that these present trials and difficulties are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits those who have trusted in Jesus. So even if we're walking through a hard time now, for those who trust in Jesus, who have made Sarah their spiritual mother, who know that it's only because of what God has done that our sin can be forgiven, for those people there is an inheritance waiting So I just urge you to, to live in light of that inheritance. Don't put your hope in the things of this world, but put your hope in the things of an internal inheritance. Live as though Sarah is your mother and not Hagar. Live in freedom and not in slavery to the law. Let's pray. Father God, we, we praise you and we thank you that 
though we couldn't earn it, though we don't deserve it, you sent Jesus to live among us. To do what we could not do, which is live a sinless life. And we thank you that Jesus went to the cross, died in our place, and offered us his righteousness in exchange for our sinfulness. But if we've made that trade by trusting in Jesus, then we can add nothing to our own salvation. We can add nothing to our own righteousness because we've already been made perfectly righteous in Jesus. Father, I pray that we would go from here confident that we are already perfect in your eyes if we have trusted in Jesus. We are free because of what Christ has done for us. And I pray that we would not use that freedom for, for our own sinful pleasure, but we would use that freedom to serve others in love. That through serving others in love, we would invite others into that same freedom that we would tell people about Jesus and the hope that is found there. A hope that no amount of morality, no amount of rule-keeping, no amount of seemingly righteous living will offer. We go from here trusting in Jesus and living our lives for the glory of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to attend 30. Children's Sunday School will start downstairs. We're going to invite any kids here to be a part of that. And then at 1045, I'll have a Q&A session about the sermon here in this room. If you're curious or want to ask any more questions, as you go now, Would you go living in freedom from the law? Would you go living as children of Sarah? You are dismissed.